What's on the silver screen? I got some takes you wouldn't believe. Hello and welcome to Popmosis Film, the film podcast. So a few episodes ago, I mentioned that we were the only film podcast. Since then, I've done some research. Turns out there are quite a few other ones. So Wait, I thought you were joking. I thought, I thought we were. Yeah, I thought you were being sarcastic. Yeah, me know. too. Being sarcastic. That's what I was <laughs> I've, I've never been sarcastic. Ask my wife. Oh. Wait, I'm so confused. Wait, are you serious? <laughs> I, I don't know anymore. Oh my god! There, there's like 500 movie podcasts. I, I would say most podcasts have to do something about movies. <laughs> and I'm well, I, yes, Tyler. I am very much being sarcastic. Oh, thank so, God! I can't tell. Oh my or god! I'm very, 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 very uninformed. And but we all do. We, we last, all do live in. We all do live in caves podcast. right now. Yes, the last movie podcast. Uh, or the first. We're neither. We're somewhere in between. So this is Popmosis Film, and we are a one of many film podcasts. So, But the cool thing about this film podcast is we have with us, as always, myself, Josiah. I'm a writer. That's the perspective I bring. And we have... I'm Paul. I'm just a movie fan. I love the movies and love to talk about movies. That's pretty <laughs> much it. And, uh, and and this is Tyler, who uh, was a critic for many years, and now I just run GGG, and uh, we don't review anymore, because uh, screw that life. <laughs> and so today we are very excited. We uh, This is a little bit different from our, we've just done a few episodes, but our format is really just to break down and analyze a film, why we love it or why we want to love it but can't love it because it hates us, such as The Green Lantern, which we were talking about before we even started this podcast, even though we recorded that weeks ago. I talk about and Green Lantern at least three times a week, uh, mostly <laughs> with my mom. And then she's just like, who? Who is this? What? <laughs> my mom might at least remember the action figures that I had of Green Do Lantern. Do I know their mother? So, like, who is this? Yeah, she thinks Green Lantern's like your childhood friend. Is he the superhero they always make fun of on Robot Chicken? (laughs) That that Aquaman. So we are happy to have with us the voice that you can hear there of Sam Koji Hale, because we are going to talk about his feature film, Yamasong, March of the Hollows. And we're going to go back in time in history to where I first met Sam. And we're going to first talk, before we talk about that feature, um, the short film Yamasong, which was a short released in 2009, Sam? 2010. So 2010. Oh, yeah, that's that's when I screened it for my film festival. So that's when I found it. Okay, so that that was – I, I, I was right on the ball when I found we it. We get it. You're I, better than yeah. us, Josiah. Just kidding. I'm just ahead of you guys slightly. That like That's the one thing I've ever been ahead of the curve on anything on. Everything else, I'm well behind it. So. What, were you, what were you saying? Sam? Oh, uh, I just said it was released in 2010. Um, I think Josiah's Film Festival might have been the second or th- third one that we were in. I think the first one was, was Florida Film Festival, and I think maybe after that. It's pretty early on, though. Hmm. Yeah, so we – and we uh, – with uh, – so just a quick uh, – before we – we're going to have plenty of questions for Sam. Just the context of how I discovered the short film version that eventually became a feature. So in 2009, 2010, I formed – it was actually 2010 uh, with my friend Andrew McGregor. We formed a film festival, which the bent on the film was short films that could become – comic books right because a lot of shorts are pitches for features and we're talking about a short that became a feature and that was kind of what we saw that 
We could help these shorts become comic books that could then maybe accelerate them to getting made into features. That never panned out the way we wanted to. We got distracted by things, and so we kind of went in a 50 million different directions. But that was the original intention of what we had. And so with that, one of the things we wanted to do was with the film festival was give an award in honor of Jim Henson, right? So what I did was we created an award. We had this idea, and I reached out to the Henson Company. And we also did the same thing for Jack Kirby, which I'll kind of throw in there. Um, the Hensons replied to me. I, I randomly emailed them and they were like, that's so sweet of you, but don't do that. You're not allowed to do that. We want to save that in case we want to do that. But what they did was they then connected me with Heather, one of Jim's daughters. So I think I was talking to Lisa. Um, she was the one that was from the Henson that was at the Henson company that was uh, emailing me. And so Lisa said, talk to Heather. She's like the indie puppet person she has a bunch of films and things that would be right up your alley and at the same time i'm connecting with her andrew is trying to get me to watch this short puppet film that he discovered and he's like you got to watch this it's it's awesome you got to watch this film so i'm connecting with heather heather then tells me about one of her films that she wants to screen it's one of the newer ones at that point in time for the festival which is yamasan which it turns out is the same exact film that andrew was telling me to watch so I have it coming at me from both ways. And then that's how we got connected. We did some events with Sam at the Hive Gallery in downtown LA, which were the small sort of intimate events, which were really cool. And then Sam was featured uh, as part of uh, one of the filmmakers when we did our big event at the Downtown Independent, our first big theater event. And that was in January of 2011. So almost a decade ago when we did our sort of yeah. big graph station extravaganza, Sam. So tell us a little bit, Sam, about the genesis of the short film. Yeah, so, you know, I'd, I'd known Heather for a number of years because I was involved, I've been involved in puppet stuff for a while uh, since I lived in the Bay Area where I went to art school. And um, I met her when she was traveling through San Francisco doing her first live show. And we just stayed in touch. And so then when I moved to LA, um, at some point I was... I was talking to, oh, it was, I did a, I did a show in Little Tokyo that was a, basically a Japanese folktale about a father whose son dies and the father has to go with a magic fox into the underworld and fight a demon and then bring the son's spirit back. And um, that was a live show we did and Heather heard about it and she was in LA going to CalArts. So I got together with her and we were talking and I was like, you know, I have another idea I'd like to pitch. It's called Yamasong. It's based on music by these musicians that I met who came to see the live show and loved the live or the live, you know, performance with puppets and were like, let's collaborate. So I pitched to Heather and then she's like, yeah, let's do it. And so started talking to the band, started working on the script based on, you know, ideas that came to me from this song that was originally written. that was about climbing to the top of a mountain, which I didn't know at the time, but, when I heard the music, I was like, I have these images of characters climbing the top of a mountain. So, uh, yeah, so Heather said, yeah, let's do it. And she funded it. And then we, you know, dove right into making the short film, uh, which I think was like her fifth or sixth short film that she funded at the time. Um, so that's the basic idea of it. And I was doing the puppet show I did in, in Little Tokyo was the first time I did something more along the lines of a Bunraku style, which is a Japanese style where you have three puppeteers performing one character. Um and, you know, when you do it live, you're dressed in black, so you just kind of disappear against the dark background. But for for film, um, you know, we shot on green screen and then keyed out the performers and, you know, did all of the, the rod and rig movement and all that. And then 
then put them into digital, you know, futuristic or sci-fi-ish type backgrounds. And um, that we shot at Kyoto Brothers Productions. They're the they're the killer clowns guys, the guys that did all the puppets for Teen America. So oh, um, awesome. I worked there for a number of years. Yeah, yeah. And they've they're they're great nurturers and they've they've been there for years, you know, um, helping artists to create new works. So um, I, I was funded by Heather Henson. And we shot where we built and shot the show at the Kyoto Brothers. Uh, how long? How long was production for the short? At least because the short is about eight and a half minutes long. So uh, yeah. So you know, with, with that, with puppetry, with uh, with pre-production and everything. I mean, how long was essentially the entire project um, from you know creating it? Yeah, the, you know the the films um, the, f- the film she funds she it's a it's a small stipend to basically fund a, the low budget film and um, we have a year to turn it around. So, you know, I was working at the time part-time at Barnes and Noble. So when I was on, on my lunch break and, and, you know, coffee break, I was storyboarding every moment I had because I knew that at some point I was going to take a, a chunk of a, like a week off or two weeks and go in and, and, you know, finish the build and, and shoot. So we shot over two weekends uh, the puppet build itself was probably two or three months, and wow. it was me and yeah, me and maybe a half a dozen other people working at Kyoto Brothers, um, you know, who let us come in and and rent some space, and yeah, it was it was really cool. Oh, and Stephen Kyoto, the 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 brother who teaches at Cal Arts, he actually sculpted the head of the of the turtle character Shojin. Oh, that, that's a great puppet. Oh wait, so uh, how how long does each puppet, uh, you know? You said two months for for just one, or for um, it, you have there there are three characters in the short, and then you have the the the, the those rock floating creatures. Um, yeah. So, uh, which one was which one was the hardest one to create? Uh, it was probably the first one because it was the the mechanical bird that that the characters ride on. Yeah. Because it was uh, you know, we were figuring it out as we were as as we were going. So that one was was the most R and D. And then once we had that, then we started building the more humanoid characters, and those were easier. Yeah. Um, so yeah, and, and it depends on it. Really depends on how many people you have working at, at the same time on on each puppet. You know, um, I ballpark it now usually at about you know three weeks a puppet. Usually is what it takes. Nice with the crews I have. Yeah. And just uh, going back to that bird, uh, the mechanical bird. It's the one sand that runs right across like the plane. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that was also like uh, like Sam will know this that that was the clip that when I had my film festival trailer we had like little clips of all the shorts from the festival and that was always the one where people were like oh what's that so that was always yeah. that grabby one and kind of going back yeah. to what um, you talked about with the visual effects what grabbed me about the short which is what you see in the feature which is the most beautiful thing about it is um, which now you see it's now common and you see the dark crystal show and all those things where you have these it's digital compositing, right? You know, in the original dark crystal, they're painting maps and all that stuff. And now uh, it's just this digital world. So you can take that tactile puppet, that real thing that you can connect with emotionally differently, like Yoda versus digital Yoda. You, it's just yeah. different. They're both fake, but one is actually real, if that makes sense. And right. um, then, but bringing in sort of those digital elements to create a world around it's, it's believable. And that was a, for me, legitimately, when I saw Sam Short, Yamasong, that was the first time I'd seen that with puppets. You know, you'd seen it in maybe some live action things and other things to pe- put people in another world. But with puppets, that was, I mean, I honestly, like for me, and I shared it with Sam, like that was groundbreaking. Like 
everything else you can throw away. It's like, oh my gosh, this is like a new way of doing this that makes it unique. And plus, obviously you saw then the next level by in a massive scale with even your feature in the Dark Crystals, the series with all the, you know, you can now the puppeteers, everybody's in a green screen suit. <laughs> so, yeah. 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 It's, it's interesting looking back. That was 10 years ago now. Um, it was, you know, it was actually one of the first films, one of the first short films also shot on a, on a Canon 7D. My DP had just bought it and he wanted to use that to you know, break it in with Yamasong. That's and, so funny. Uh, like I have the exact just, same uh, camera. That was, that's how we shoot all of our stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that was, was like one of the first times, to, you know, that, or that I, I'm aware of anyway, but yeah, what Josiah's saying is true. You know, we, we've, uh, we have other short films that we've worked on and I worked with a lot of other puppet filmmakers and there was one other film that came out that, uh, it was basically, I think being shot and, and posted around the same time as Yamasong because Yamasong came out. And then a few months later, moon fishing, which is another one of Heather's short films came out and it's the same process, you know, the, the same exact process we were using is what, a filmmaker, David Michael Friend, was also using in New York. And we were both, you know, same mindset. We're going to, you know, we, we know these tools. We do After Effects. We want to combine all of these tools together in one place, live puppets, digital, and, you know, compositing it. So, yeah, it was it was at the time really new and, and fresh and different. And it's neat to see that the Dark Crystal series really kind of built off of that. I'm not taking credit for it, of course, but it's just like, well, see, puppets, you know, green screen, yeah, uh, mixed sets with you know real live practical elements. It's all kind of become part of the toolbox, you know. Absolutely. So, um, something I'm actually very interested in asking you is, what do you think are the um, the advantage, the advantages, and also like maybe the cons of creating something with puppets as opposed to stop motion? Uh, I know they're completely different processes and completely different production. Um, what's I mean, like you know. Yeah, I mean, they, they just are. Uh, yeah. But, I mean, what have you found to be, you know, the pros and cons of doing puppetry as opposed to stop motion? Well, I've, I over working at Kyoto Brothers, I've worked on, on everything from stop motion to live puppets to costume creatures. So being over there as, as long as I have, I've been able to touch a lot of different approaches. And, um, you know, the, the I think the classic thing that people would say, you know, stop motion takes a long time. Because yeah. it's, you know, you're animated one frame at a time or, or you know, one one pose for one frame or two frames. But, you know, at the end of the day, you have seconds of footage where with live puppets, you can get more, you know. Yeah. Um, I'd say it depends on who it is. But like with Yamasong, I think we're averaging uh, maybe four to five minutes a day for dialogue. But any action that required, you know, choreography and planning and all that. Uh, it went down to like a minute and a half to two minutes in a day. So um, that's a lot more than stop motion, but it's still yeah. not a lot of footage compared to say live action where you can, you know, you can shoot, you know, yeah, I don't know. I don't even know how many pages is average for a show. It probably depends on if it's a comedy, if you know, yeah, a drama or an action film. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah, exactly. I'm sure that parallel that you just used, Sam totally runs true where it's like, is it an action sequence? How elaborate is the action sequence versus, you know, characters talking and dialogue, which with puppets can probably bring its own complications, right? I mean, oh yeah, or, yeah. You know, the <laughs> I mean, action. This is this is what people. This is what people in in live puppets say. Every shot is a special effects shot. Yeah, you have to plan every shot. You know, if it's rod puppets or bunraku, when you start moving through the the sequence of the action, 
a puppeteer's arm might cross in front of the puppet. So then you got to reblock it so that that doesn't happen. And then, then you bring in, once we do the rough blocking, then we bring in the lights, we light it, and suddenly a puppeteer shadow is going over your whole set. Yeah. So then you got to move your puppeteer or you got to move your <laughs> lights so you're not getting that. So we're constantly adjusting and adjusting. With the Amazon in the movie, we got into really good rhythm with the team we had. So after, I think, the first week, second week, we were getting into really great rhythm. Um, but yeah, that's so that's part of the challenge of shooting with puppets versus yeah. live action in general. Puppets versus stop motion. I'd say the tricky part with shooting with puppets is doing puppets in film like I do is still relatively new. So finding people who have the experience doing it is a little harder to recruit than stop motion where you've got LA, you've got so many people who've been working at robot chicken yeah. or have gone through, you know, Bix picks and tumble leaf and their show or, or Kyoto brothers and, and their different stop motion things or, or screen novelties. There's enough stop motion companies here or people coming in down from Portland who worked at Leica. There's yeah. enough people out there who've worked in stop motion production that you can plug in and just, you know, kind of go, if they know how to do it, you plug them in and you just, you just start, you know, where, there's a little bit of a learning curve, I think, for live puppets still because it's I, I as old as puppets are, it's that this process is still relatively new, you know. Exactly. No, I, I, I absolutely agree. I mean, stop motion has been around, you know, for a very, very long time. I mean, there there was stop motion animation before there was actually even two D animation way back when, you mm -hmm. know, even the nineteen tens. Yeah. I mean, it, it has been around almost since the beginning of film. And uh, yeah. which is very different from, um, you know, like what you're saying, live puppetry. And I, I think like one thing with like live, pu live puppetry that would be like a lot, a lot better is that you can like what you were saying, like you can you can do something and, and see, oh, I can see the puppeteer's shadow. Like the one thing that you have an advantage of with live puppetry is you can actually rehearse the scene as opposed to the, mm -hmm. right. <laughs> as opposed to yeah. the, the stop motion. You're just like, we worked on this for 30 days and didn't yeah. realize that light moved like <laughs> oh man like, i've worked in visual effects and stop motion on a lot of stop motion projects and that's what vfx is largely about and stop motion is like a light pops in the middle of a, of a shot yep. so then the vfx person has to go in and then fake the light or find <laughs> a way to fix it so that it looks like it's normal you know that the lighting is normal in the, in this whole yeah. whole scene or or take getting rid of rigs or I, I love in the stop motion world, you know, the animators are moving and they've got their tools and, and stuff. And you'll, sometimes you'll have tools that they leave in the shot because they're yeah. moving so fast. So then you got to go and rotoscope out, you know, a drill yep. or, you know, or, or shavings of wood because they've been drilling holes in the floor to move the puppet, but they didn't clean the set cleanly enough. <laughs> so you got a little bit of chatter of, of, of wood bits. Uh, all that kind of stuff is really fun. Um, it's, for for Yamasong and and films like that, uh, I I feel like we, when it gets to the post, uh, the post, post stage, that we end up bringing in live action compositors more than stop motion compositors, because it's live puppets, so the puppets are constantly moving. Even if the puppet is standing still, there's a little bit of float or a little bit of jitter or shake. You know, you try to minimize it, but there's still sometimes that. So, rig removal oftentimes is down to frame by frame rig removal where stop motion sometimes you can get away with you know if a, if a character is locked down in the background and not moving you might not have to do much clean up on it at all yeah so yeah so there's there's a little bit of a challenge there so it's it's kind of in a way we're kind of writing the playbook on it through the films that we do 
Um, and hopefully, you know, I can, I can pass that on to other people as they, as you know, they, they do those kinds of films too. Um, and, and we've talked, and we've talked about, um, Henson, Jim, you know, the Hensons and all that and Jim Henson and puppetry. And so often just kind of piggyback on people think of puppetry as Muppets as here's my arm up Elmo's butt and making him talk. And that's what we think of as puppetry a lot of the time. And it's, this is a far more complicated version of that where you have, and I mean, Jim Henson's obviously done all that stuff, which, but it's just a lot of time. I think the mind goes to that simple version, like it's Sesame street where, you know, Oscars in a trash can, that kind of thing, where it's just the, the, the more simple puppet, as opposed to this fully articulated character that, you know, you might be watching a scene. For example, I know that one of the questions that we talked about that, that shot of that, mechanical bird sort of running across the landscape that was a shot that i know every time that we did a screening people would ask well was that stop motion was that some right. other kind of visual effect because it looked the way it was running it was like well that can't be a puppet that's kind of how people reacted to that i remember specifically right. so yeah yeah i mean you know the the muppet style i think is most conducive to um verbal comedy you know characters talking to each other and jokes and gags. I think that's what it's really strongest at. Um, one of the things that got me excited about doing more of this, this tabletop Boonraku style is that you see the whole body. Yeah. So it's, you know, it's got the possibility to get into full, full choreography and action and all of that. Um, I also saw in 2001, a film called legend of the sacred stone. I don't know if you've ever heard of that. Mm -hmm. It's a, uh, it's a Taiwanese martial arts film. And it's Taiwanese rod puppets. So the company that did that, it was all martial arts. And I saw that in 2001. I'm like, wow, this is really dynamic, really cool. It's not something you'll ever see with Muppets. And so that was, you know, one of my inspirations back then. And it wasn't, you know, it was eight or nine years later before I put, you know, put that into practice. But, um, but yeah, so Muppets, you only see usually waist up. And so, you know, shooting some of the challenges, you know, when you do big group shots, if you don't have something like... Um, um, was it Muppets? Uh, was it Muppets Take Manhattan where they were in the hotel? Yeah, they had the big singing number. Yeah, so a big singing number. So you have Muppets on the ground level, close to camera, behind them, and you have characters on the stairs and the characters on the second floor. So you can fill the whole frame in a wide shot. If you don't have those kinds of shots, oftentimes what you have instead is characters kind of in the lower half or lower third of your frame, and then a lot of dead space in the back. Yeah, absolutely. So that's that's one of the things that happens with with shooting Muppets. Sally, you have to you have to be creative about. And of course, you know Jim Henson and Frank Oz were super creative about working around those limitations. Um, yeah, the it, advantage it, it, of the it placement style of puppets, especially. Oops, sorry. I was saying with the placement of puppets as well, and like which characters they would utilize as well. Like it's like what those two in particular were just so good at. Yeah, yeah. They they developed a you know a a language of, of visual storytelling with their particular type of puppetry that, that people are, they still use, you know, it works so well. Yeah. And, uh, you know, with what we're doing with Yamasai, I hope that, you know, we're helping to figure out some of those same kinds of things so that we can, you know, keep doing stories in this style. Cause I, I'm really into the whole, Josiah can back me up on this, the whole kind of comic book action, but in, in puppet form, you know, the, yeah. the Jack Kirby classic, you know, big fights and stuff flying everywhere and, and uh, lots of, lots of dynamic visceral action that you don't see. 
Absolutely. And really yeah. quickly, the Jack Kirby mentioned Sam won an award named after Jack Kirby. So we went and tried to do the Henson Award. They said no. We also did a Jack Kirby Award. We reached out to them. They didn't respond. So we're like, well, let's just do it anyway. And maybe they'll like send us a cease and desist or something and tell us to stop. But at least like <laughs> we'll get some attention for it. Literally, that wasn't my thinking at the time. And that they never said anything, but we only gave the award out once and we gave it to Sam. So for Yamasan. So it's kind of cool that <laughs> Jack Kirby comes full circle in that way. Uh, so uh, let's. <laughs> and Jack Kirby keeps coming up. You know, we were chatting before we started recording about the Warner Brothers stuff. And um, my in with Warner Brothers was one of the development guys over there is a huge Jack Kirby fan. So the first time we met, we just talked Jack Kirby for 30 minutes before we even got to the pitch. It was great. <laughs> Uh, I, 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 I want to deviate real quick because, um, you know, we, we, we've been talking about the short film a lot and a little and dabbled into the actual um, film itself. And uh, one thing that I'm like, I, I, I'm I, while watching both um, that I love was the fact that in the short, we had a story of three characters, um, you know, two, you know, uh, two free thinking characters and one, you know, bird transportation, essentially, uh, character as well. And going on to a a full broad world with uh, with rules, with people, with different uh, with different kinds of people, um, and with civilizations, and then also another story of you know uh, of people orbiting that that world as well. Uh, what were some of the things as from translating this to a short that was focused so uh, so much on the two characters connecting and um, you know, and telling their story as opposed to creating this into a, a, a bigger world that actually impacts literally the entire, like the, the entire world, multiple uh, people that we don't even see in the, in the, um, you know, in the film. Yeah. When, when I, um, to give you a little background on the film, you know, I did a Kickstarter and one of the guys who funded me was, a was a businessman from the United Arab Emirates, Sultan uh, Said al-Darmaki. And Sultan came to LA and met me and we were talking and he's like, I'm thinking of starting my own company and I want to make a feature film. Do you have anything you'd like to do? So I happened to have my iPad with me and I gave it to Sultan to watch Yamasong. He watched it and he goes, oh, this is fantastic. Let's make it. It wasn't any, you know, haggling or, you know, this and that kind of back and forth stuff you often hear, you know, with contracts or whatever. It was just like, let's make it. And he funded it, you know, it's like Heather said, let's make it. And she funded it where uh, most of the time, you, you know, it could take six months or a year or longer to, to hammer out the contract in detail. So once he said, let's make it, then I jumped right into thinking, okay, I'm going to take this eight minute, nine minute short and expand it out into, you know, 90 minutes. What is, you know, what do I need to put into it or what needs to go into it? And I think the biggest thing was just saying, I want to make it, a, you know, see the world, kind of like Dark Crystal, see more of the scope of the world and expand on each of the races or cu cultures that are part of that world. So we, I already knew we had the, the turtle race, the Terrapins, who are kind of like samurai, uh, but, you know, water village dwelling, boat dwelling people who are fishermen. So they're kind of the, like a traditional Asian culture kind of thing. And then Nani, the patchwork girl, we knew that she was already, you know, trapped in a prison moon over the planet. So it was like, okay, expand on that a little more. Why are they in the prison? Um, you know, what is it that forced them to be there and, and what is it, what's her motivation for escaping? Because in the first one, we see her escape yeah. and go to the planet for a short time and then wind up back in, in the prison. Um, 
it's funny because I hadn't originally thought about the, the prison idea, but when I showed the original short to Stephen Kyoto at the Kyoto Brothers, Stephen goes, so uh, why are there bars on the window in the background? Is this some kind of prison? And it was just like an aesthetic thing at the time, I think. We created windows and the windows, you know, we put some bars on the windows. But that got me thinking, oh, yeah, it's a prison. It's definitely a prison. So why is she a prisoner? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we expanded out from that, you know. Um, and then the third race, which are the Ovis, the Ram-like people, were part of another character. The original short was supposed to have a third character that they meet. And it was going to be a Ram character. And uh, that character I cut because it was going to take, it was going to be more costly. It was going to take some more time. And and I felt like it kind of muddled the original short story because it was, it was stronger when it was just the two characters on their journey. So, you know, bringing a third character in is kind of adding like a third rung to a, I don't know, to a romance or, you know, creating a love triangle instead of just two strangers meet and go on a journey together. Yeah. So that's when I started developing what, who are the Ovis and what's their relationship to the other two races? Because um, I, I did want to bring the Ovis in. I already had designs and stuff from the short film. Uh, so it was a matter of figuring that out. So I was expanding the scope and then figuring out what was the thing that connected them all together. It was the return of the hollows who were prisoners and then them wanting to pick up where they left off in terms of conquering the world again and turning everybody into machines. So that was, that was pretty much, you know, the, the big step was just deciding how big to go with it and how to connect all the characters together. Absolutely. So, yeah. Thank you. So that's, that, that's really interesting to hear, Sam, just knowing that, you know, like I said, I discovered, found what came to me, the short in 2010, that's a, like a decade ago. And um, ah. the, it's crazy to think, but the, the fact that then there was the character that, you know, that was expanded in the future, that the, the Ovis character was already there. What, just curiosity, what role would that have played in the short? Like, would it have been a similar dynamic oh. to the film? Like sort of that, it was. It would have been crazy. It would have changed the whole short because there was there was also another um, hollow character, a patchwork character. It was originally going to be Nani and a male that both end up on the world, hmm. and then they would. But then the male, I don't remember exactly. I'd have to go back to look at my notes. Something happened to the male where he's either trapped or or killed or destroyed. So then she was left there by herself, and then the Ovis was this weird kind of heavy metal type inspired creatures was riding on a big giant motorcycle that flew through the air. It was, it was, he was like, you know, a hell's angel, but Ram guy. It was, it was nothing like what he became, but that's, that's okay. what it was. Yeah. It would have been so different. And there were flying it's bubbles, it, like bubbles that they get trapped in and float around in. And it, it, was, it was a little trippier. I mean, <laughs> um, it's trippy and, anyway. And, and you mentioned how the, the, the music, the, 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 the Composer on the film, Shoji, he also did the music with a band for the short. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, yeah. Shoji, actually, it's the same band for both. Um, Shoji Kometa is the leader of Own Ensemble, which is an L.A.-based band. Uh, you can check out their music at ownensemble.com. That's O-N-Ensemble.com. And uh, they, their thing is they, they work with traditional Western and Eastern instruments. They, they play taiko. They play... Japanese flute. They do uh, like t like uh, throat singing, like Mongolian or Tibetan throat singing type stuff, and mix that together with like guitars and and modern Western instruments. And uh, it's it's just super cool the, the the fusion, the East West fusion sound that they have. And so 
they were working on an album when Shoji saw Fox Lantern, which was my my Japanese um, folktale story. And uh, he came up afterwards and like, let's collaborate. So he's the one who gave me the music. And then, so everything, I built an animatic for Yamasong around the music. So all of the timing, everything was pretty much determined by the music and the beats of the music. Um, when we got to the feature film, I went back to Shoji and I was like, hey man, we got a movie. You want to score the movie? And he's like, yeah, of course. And I was like, okay, it's it has to be different this time though because we have this big script, this world we're building and I can't take music that you've written and try to shoehorn the story into the music. Can we do it the other way around, which is how films usually are, right? You have the picture and then you bring in your composer and then they compose or they score to the picture. So we kind of flipped the process for the feature, which I think was a little frustrating for Shoji at first, but I think he got, got into it. And then I also, I brought in Steve Eat, who was a, who's an illustrator who also helped out on the original Yama song. He'd moved on to like video game, um, video game art, doing like uh, concept art for video games. And so I brought him in and he did like seven or eight concept pieces based on just rough descriptions of what I knew was going to be in the story. And then he fleshed out these concept art pieces and I sent those to Shoji and then Shoji started doing his initial composing based on the visuals that he got on the concept part. That's awesome. Paul, do you have a question? Yeah, I was wondering how, um, like how much of the, the movie was already developed when he did the short film. Um, and I, like one thing I was kind of wondering about the um, the short film is is that it, like or the original the film felt like a sequel to the short film, and I thought it would be kind of neat if they, you kind of expanded more on the short story and kind of like merged the two together. So I was just wondering what the um, yeah about that the tra- the transition essentially yeah. Yeah, so one uh, when I was writing the script for the feature, um, yeah, I had a, a lot of ideas already because the gap between the finished film 2010, when we released in 2010, and then the funding for the feature was four years. So 2014 is when I got the funding. So in that four years time, you know, I'd gone out and pitched it around to studios and got the same response at Disney and, at, you know, Nickelodeon, at, you know, Warner Brothers. That this is This is weird. It's artsy. We don't know what to do with it. So. You know, I got to pass all the way around. So then I put it on the shelf for a couple of years. But, you know, I was still working with ideas. And um, so there are a lot of different possible ways it could have gone, I think. Uh, at one point, Heather Henson and I had taken it to Boom Studio. I think is that that's the comic book company. I think it was Arkea, which was before Arkea folded and then Boom took over. Yeah, it was. Uh, Sam, I re- I'll just say I remember at the time you telling me it was Arkea. I just I remember yeah. you talking about that meeting with Arkea. So that's just, okay. <laughs> but okay. I don't know anything else. I don't... You are correct. <laughs> yes, I... You are correct though. It is boom. Yeah. I think Arkea, it was Arkea. And they were handling all the Henson projects like Fraggle Rock, Dark Crystal, all those comics. Yeah. That's why we had, we had a connection to them. So we went in and pitched Yamasong and some of, some of the other short films that Heather produced. And um, they were interested. And then in the end, they eventually came back and said, no, we're going to just stick with the IP that's Henson stuff that already has a fan base. People already know, you know, Fraggle Rock. They know Dark Crystal. They know Labyrinth. 
So that's that's that conversation only lasted a couple of meetings. But uh, what it did is it jump started this idea in my head. Well, you know, if I got to do a comic series, what would it be? You know, where would where would I take uh, Shojin and Nani? You know, what would we explore in their world? So there are already those ideas kind of floating around in my head by the time, you know, Sultan asked me if I wanted to, you know, take his money and make a film. So, yeah. And in, in those discussions, Sam, were discussions you and I had as well, because like I said, the goal of uh, our film festival at that time was to take shorts and make them into comic books. So it yeah. was right in line with what we were trying to do. And uh, it was kind of that thing where we had at the time we, we were, we were releasing, we were, the plan was we never truly did it though, to release independently small run print run of comic books, like, of the shorts to kind of showcase them. And then we were going to do that, take that too. We had a deal with um, IDW at the time. And it was just kind of like a, not a deal, but like a, a sort of a friendly agreement where they would take a look at our work and kind of like be that like first look that our filmmakers could pitch to them kind of thing. So, and that never led to anything or panned out, but that those are the discussions we had. So it's kind of like interesting just how, Almost like in some sense, like you're inadvertently like sort of growing a story in different ways. Yeah. Not necessarily yeah. knowing where it might go, but it's knowing it's going to go somewhere and just kind of exploring these different tracks. And then so you found out where it went. Yeah, actually, we we were approached after the Amazon film came out last year, approached by an independent comic company that was interested in developing a comic series around Yamasong. And we, we, again, you know, the idea started turning in, in, in my head and we had a lot of different ways we could go with it. But ultimately, in the, in the end, the Dark Dunes, who owns the rights to the feature film, said no to the comic book. Last year, they also said no to the video game, which could have also been cool. But, um, you know, you develop the ideas and then you kind of put it away. And, and then when the next conversation happened, you kind of pull out the stuff, dust it off and say, does this... Is this stuff still relevant or am I interested in telling this story or do I want to do something else now? And uh, the thing about the Yamasong short, though, right now, um, you know, it's a 10 year anniversary and we're actually going to be doing a, um, an event next next month at the Smithsonian in Washington, D.C., the Smithsonian Asian Art Museum. They're going to do a Yamasong screening and I'm going to teach a workshop. And so, you know, Yamasong is kind of fresh in my head again and ideas are starting to starting to uh to turn come back and yeah 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 because i just and it's all kind of based on that one image josiah of the girl on the bird you know because the puppet that the puppet workshop i'm leading we're actually going to make paper versions of the bird and shojin and nani that kids can color and then you know construct and and re kind of reconstruct that that scene if they want to and um so yeah i i think there's 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 still plenty of areas to explore you know with dark dunes we talked about a sequel uh, they, we haven't talked about that for a couple of years now but um i've already got an idea of where what the sequel would be but you know if, if i get an opportunity to do something else like either a comic book or maybe another short i might go back in and expand the short film and children and nani's journey because they could they could play in that world just with those few characters Absolutely. Um, so, like, you know, uh, talking about expanding and talking about, you know, uh, characters and, and, you know, character development and stuff. Uh, what is the one thing about actually doing puppets that you think actually has like a, a gain as opposed to so many different forms of animation, so many other forms of 
uh, of using like puppets, um, you know, dolls, um, stop motion, you know, stop motion clay figures and stuff like that. For you, you know, for you as a creator and somebody who loves puppetry, you know, what is the one thing that you think is actually best about actually just utilizing these puppets? I'd say it's the it's the the physicality of them, the reality of the puppets. You know, they're the the textures are there, the colors are there. That's all baked in by reality. You don't have to have a lighting artist and a texture artist and you know a rigger and all of the you know the the CGI characters have so many people attached to bringing one character to life. Where with puppets, it's really you build the puppet and it's the puppeteers who bring it to life under the director's you know vision but that's it and and like you said you know we can we can rehearse and rehearse until we get something a certain way which is which is an advantage that you you don't have with other other approaches so i'd say that's it really is the physicality of them and then i've i've been in you know sessions you know brainstorming sessions and stuff where when you have the puppet in the room you can it's almost like being a kid again you can pick up the puppet and move it around and and then he does this and then he does that or um or or when I did the voice sessions with all of our actors, you know, I'd bring in the puppet. So, you know, George Takei could see his character and, or, you know, or or um, Peter Weller could see their character. And each person when I bring in the puppet, they just thought they were maquettes that were an example of what their animated character is going to look like. And I was like, no, yeah. no, no, these this is your character right here. And they were always like, wow, this is cool. Did you did you record um you know all the all the dialogue and you know did you record prior to the puppetry or did you do production first and then recording? It was a mix. That's probably the hard, one of the hardest things about production was mm. uh you know our our schedule was really dependent on the stars' schedules as far as when they could come in and record. So we would record as as they became available. We'd go in, we'd have a session, and then we'd cut their stuff into. Um, you know, into the into the the overall animatic, and and then start to build our schedule for our shoot. So we would shoot for a week on, week off kind of thing, and in between, grab Nathan Fillion or grab Whoopi Goldberg, you know, when they're available. Available. So what that caused the difficult thing it caused for us was sometimes we'd only have one side of a conversation when two characters are talking. Yeah. So we would we'd shoot say. We'd shoot Nathan Fillion's side, but then we'd flip around for Abigail Breslin. We didn't have it yet, so we couldn't really flip around. So then we had to take really good notes about what our lighting setup was, what we shot, log all of that, and you know stay on top of all of those details. So when we came back in, after we got Abigail Breslin or whoever was opposite of Nathan Fillion's character, know what we shot, review what we shot, and then you know get the reverse on it. Yeah. So... If you're, that's the hardest part. Absolutely, you're talking about you know like you know getting the wheels and creative you know basically getting the creative juices kind of flowing again, uh, you know and possibly you know maybe expanding on the story even more so. Um, is there anything that you would like to incorporate into uh, into whatever the next project might be, uh, you know this next time around that you weren't able to do um, you know for this film or even for the short? Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I love, I love what I've seen behind the scenes of, of shows like Clone Wars, for example, they would bring a lot of all their voice actors into the room at the same time, if they can and get everybody all together, you know, so you have the energy of the actors playing off of each other. I think that would be one big thing that I'd really love to be able to do, or at least do it as much as possible. 
Um, yeah, that's interesting. You know. I, I would I, I would never produce anything near the level of what uh, these these are for voiceover. But I used to produce voiceover, and I would have to be the guy reading back because you know I was actually producing and I wasn't directing it, and I would be yeah. the one reading the dialogue back to the whatever character. And and I worked on a lot of like toys brand like web stuff. So I'm, yeah. I'm the one reading back like their little girlfriend who's like, oh, I'm G, can you believe it? And that's getting it from me. And I'm like doing my best. And, but I am by no means a, you know, 12 year old little girl actor. So it's, right. it's, it's definitely a different dynamic when you have both of those actors in a room that can then bring that out. I mean, you can see, I, th- I think in the film, particularly with uh, Nathan Fillion, like he is so amazingly fantastic that there's a yeah. level of humanity to that character that is just, I think the, the, the deepest in the film, just, he is so, maybe George Takai, I don't really, those two, both of, it's something with those turtles that, but he is so, so, so good as a voice actor that he could be talking back against someone like me and it doesn't matter. But uh, there might be other people who don't have that uh, dynamic <laughs> ability. And even when someone's good, I mean, I feel like it makes them better when they can do that. So. Yeah, so you can imagine then the the person that was and that was you in our our recording sessions was me. So I was <laughs> I was acting opposite of Whoopi Goldberg, or opposite of Nathan Fillion, or opposite of George Takei, and that was really cool. But you know, I'm not I'm not a professional voice person. So, um, but you know, they were all able to bounce off of my energy. So that's good. You know, we at least get that. It's not that we're just saying, okay, read your line. Now do it again. Now do it again. There was. It was more dynamic than that, but I would love to have the actors, you know, performing to each other and reacting off of each other. I think you'd get a, another level of performance out of them that way. Absolutely. Um, yeah. But, you know, Nathan Fillion, he's he's so good. And I, you know, I, I've listened, you know, when we were cutting the audio together, I listened to his voice, all of their voices so many times. But the thing about him, I found is he has this natural warmth in his voice yeah this kind of friendly disarming goofy you know kind of personality that you know you you just want to hang out with the guy you know so um that's what i think you know i i agree i agree a thousand percent. I didn't connect with him uh, originally what was that well, again again paul so how did you connect with him originally like how, did you have nathan fillion in mind for shojun or was he interested in the part and he decided to hop on board like how would, what was that process in, in casting him? Uh, well, sh- uh, let's see. Sultan asked me if I had a wish list. So I gave him my wish list. And um, Nathan Fillion was on the list for Shojin. He was the first one, first choice. And George Takei was on the list for his father, Masuk. So um, both of those we got, which was great. Uh, the way it worked was uh, Dark Dunes had worked with Malcolm McDowell in their previous film, Kids vs. Monsters. And... Um, uh, Malcolm McDowell had worked with them, so he, they already had his info, and he liked working with them. So they reached out to Malcolm McDowell, and uh, he loved the part for Lord Gear and took it. And then his agent also reps um, Bruce Davison, who's a wonderful, great indie, you know, film film guy. And um, I mean, so we got Malcolm and Bruce. I mean, right ending the fact that he was in X Men One. I'm, I'm just <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's yeah, yeah. and, and, oh, well, and, and Willard and Willard, Willard also. Yeah. And he From said, you know what, when we had the last Willard. session with him, he said now his career has moved to, uh, he's the voice of Zuko in Legend of Korra. Yes. The older <laughs> Zuko. So, yeah. 
Um, and he was great. And he's, he's kind of like a, he's almost like a, a acting coach. He's, he's yeah. so supportive of, of indie creative stuff. So yeah, we had Bruce and Malcolm right off the bat. And then uh, my producer uh, went out and reached out, I think to, I think a CAA maybe, I think this is where Nathan Fillion and Frida Pinto are. So just reached out to them and said, Hey, we have this film, you know, Heather Henson and Toby Froud, the kids of Jim Henson and Brian Froud, the original creators of Dark Crystal are now making a movie and we have Malcolm McDowell and we have Bruce Davison. Don't you want your guy or your gal to be in on it? And so then they went to their people and Nathan, I think, I think Nathan Fillion said yes pretty quickly. Frida Pinto. Yeah. Yeah. He is great. I think Abigail Breslin was a friend of a friend. Um, So we cast, you know, it it took about two months to get everybody. And the last one was Whoopi Goldberg. Um, But I don't feel like there was a lot of fight to get them. I think everybody, once they found out about the project and who the who the talent was involved, kind of jumped on board. So it was like a snowball effect. Yeah. That's great. So, Sam, how yeah, much time in, in terms of like, you know, talking about production. So how much time did you spend, would you say, in the studio with each actor generally and then overall recording the 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 um, dialogue and then plus the production overall like what was just the time frame for like I know you said kind of you did things here and there when you could because of their availability what what in terms of time kind of did you spend on those things so you know each each record session was about two hours so and we had nine nine voice actors so most of them were two hours Ed Asner was the shortest he was under an hour so uh, and but Whoopi was the longest I think she was three. So it's about it was about eighteen to twenty hours for all the voice stuff, counting ADR and loop group. Um, it's not bad. And then, yeah, yeah, it wasn't bad at all. The shoot itself was about fifty days, counting pickups. Um, so that's you know maybe a little on the long side, but I wouldn't say it's horrible. No. And <laughs> then uh, post is what took the longest. It took us like a year and a half of post. I think it's like fifteen, sixteen months of just you know VFX working on each shot. And, you know, I was working pretty constantly. It wasn't just popping in and giving notes and then leaving when they need me. I was doing, since everything was on green screen or some level of green, um, I was doing all of the layouts, the background layout, just like an animation. So I was laying, you know, I was doing Photoshop comps, sending it over to all of the, the post people so they know exactly where to put the background plate, and what position, what scale, all of that. So, um that was a pretty intense, busy time. Uh, so, you know, we signed the contract for Yamasong in the summer of 2014, started building puppets in uh, fall of 2014, started shooting a uh, recording audio and shooting uh, January, February of 2015, wrapped shooting, I think, in September 2015. And then we were just in post until mid 2016 or so. Nice. Um, you know, yeah. um, talking about the green screen and everything like that, I mean, what, what is, uh, would you, maybe if you were to continue on, I mean, would you like to use, um, you know, sets and a little bit more, you know, um, yeah, I, I, I guess just, just, yeah. just, just real, yeah, like real places for the puppets as opposed oh, yeah. to, uh, relying so heavily on, um, on VFX. And just to interject right, real quick, right, Sam, yeah, then yeah. how much would you say, how much would you say was, um, like, what, going off what Tyler was saying, how much would you say was, like, physically built for the sets versus what was then digitally put in later? 
I'd say probably, I'd say with 30 to 40% of what we had was real. And it was, you know, like the inside of Lord Gear's cottage. It was a half wall. So the performers performed over a wall. Yeah. And then, then we digitally extended the wall texture that we already had that we shot in camera and extended that up to fill the, fill the frame. Um, and that worked pretty well. Um, the stuff that got more difficult was when it was just straight green because you, you don't know what's there until you start building it. And, and that my DP would also, you know, the DP didn't lighting everybody. The performers would all say the same kind of thing, which would be, it's, it's so much better when you can see what you're the space you're performing in, what you're performing to, how to light it, how to shoot it. Um, that's why I love like the Mandalorian and what they're doing now with the, the 360 set and the, you know, the, the sky, everything they're in the world completely. I, yeah. yeah, that's, that's definitely the direction I want to go would be doing but more that's, of that. And that's the evolution of what Stanley Kubrick was doing, right. With the, the massive projection that he did in like 2001 and all those things. So it's kind of cool yeah. to see how the technology advances, what 50 years later to yeah. do those things. Yeah, so, you know, for the scale we work out with Yamasong, the puppets are 18 to 20 inches tall. I know with the right budget, we can get some, you know, pretty large screens and pretty much build our backgrounds, you know. And even if we're still shooting a little bit of green for maybe some of the super wides or whatever, when you're doing a, a medium or a close-up on your character, you can throw a sky in there that's, you know, that's the right the right lighting temperature, the, the right temperature, the right color. You can get all that stuff in camera now. So um, that's definitely one direction I want to go. And uh, I, I was working on a feature last year uh, with a Chinese company. The feature didn't go, but we did uh, spend about uh, four months developing puppets and sets. And the whole idea I had was to do it all practically. So, uh, And I worked out a lot of techniques with that. And that's a direction I definitely want to go, build a full set. And then your characters, you know, any rods they have or puppeteers, We'll just digitally remove them because it's easier to do kind of the stop motion approach where you shoot a clean plate, bring in your puppets, light, shoot, pull everybody out, shoot a second clean plate, and then VFX can go in. And when they remove the rods, they're basically just erasing the rods and the holes that are there are the plate that's sitting behind it. Yeah, yeah, it makes sense. You just draw. Yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that's definitely the direction that I'd go. I you know, am going. Um, how much creative input would you get? Were you pretty much given, well, like full freedom to do what you want, or did, was there a lot of creative input and collaboration with, like, the producers and uh, financiers and whatnot? Uh, the producers, I think, they were most active in the in the writing phase, um, and they they came to set and they visited set a few times, and and during those times, you know, when we're setting up shots, we'd they, you know, they, they peek in and go, so what are you doing here? And, and I'd say, this is what we're doing. What do you think? And, you know, there's, they're generally pretty good about saying, yeah, yeah, go ahead with that. Um, there, there are a few points in the script phase where uh, we made some changes. And then also in post, once we had our first, our first pass on the full edit, uh, then there was some looking at the edit and going, well, what do we need? You know, something's not working here. How can we do it? You know, they didn't want to go back and do any reshoots. So first we were just trying to figure out how we can use what we've already shot to, you know, connect certain shots or, or moments together. Um, the biggest changes I think were in the intro in the, in the feature, you'll notice there's the whole 
first two or three minutes, which gives you the backstory, and it's basically clips of the short, plus a little bit of extra, you know, building world building stuff. That was that's in there because uh, the producers are like, we don't want our audience to be completely lost when you start the story. So we're going to give you, we want you to do narration. We want you to give, you know, stuff from the, from the short so that people know what happened. And I think it works. I've seen, I've seen some, you know, critical feedback, you know, online things about, well, that first part, you know, they're just throwing a bunch of stuff at us that, you know, you don't need to know if you want to just start after five minutes or whatever, you can pick up the story from there. Um, but other people feel like it was absolutely necessary. So, you know, it works. Uh, the original the original film starts with the attack on the village. That's how it was originally written. So out of nowhere, these you know the soot storms come from the sky. You see the tricksters. The soot comes from the sky, attacks the village. Everyone's in danger. They hide, and then we go to Shojin in the snow, which is where we're picking him up from at the end of the from the short film. So that was the original beginning. So that had to be rewritten, um, and we brought Bruce Davison back in to do narration. Okay, so there was there was never then that intention, at least initially before in your script, the, the version of the script that you you know put down when shooting, it just started at that point with the village, and then it was once you had your final sort of edit, then you decided to then pull from the short. Yeah, yeah, to, to okay. build like a, a bit of the narrative. We pulled uh, that little that intro piece in the beginning. It's like two or three minutes. Is half clips from the short, basically highlights from the short, and then uh, the older backstory of where Pitor he came to the world. You know, he came with his hollows. They met the Ovis. They started to convert them into machines, and then he, you know, he punished them and put them in the prison. That was all new stuff that we shot. But okay. the Shojin Nani journey was straight from the short. Yeah, look, I mean, watching it, I was like, I knew that from the short. And I'm sure that Paul and Tyler watching it just literally probably back to back. Here's the short. Here's the feature. It's like, oh, that's the same thing. And it's kind of cool. One thing that um mentioned, if you have Amazon Prime, you can watch this on Amazon Prime. So check it out. Yeah. Anyone's listening that you if you have it, a lot of people have Amazon Prime because of the state of the world right now that you can actually yes. kind of get stuff. So I ordered yeah. a dog collar for my dog. My dog collar is broken. And it kind yeah. of sort of works, but th- 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 it's not supposed to come until May 15th because it's not an essential item. So I guess I have to go out and get a dog collar. But anyway, oh, yeah. you can right now. You might have to wait for your dog collars, but you do not have to wait to watch Yamasong to understand the context of what we're talking about with the film. So sort of where do you, what is, uh, if you, what is, whether it be Yamasong or what, where are you, what's your next project, Sam? What What's kind of in the pipeline for you? Um, well, I, I told you, I'll, I'll, I'll plug it here. Um, I'm writing a sci-fi story right now, and it's kind of going back to my book illustration roots that I started in um, art school. That's what I was originally studying to do is book illustration. So I'm writing, a, I basically challenged myself to write a nine-week story. So it's a sci-fi short, and it's about a character on a world that's, uh, they basically lived underground because their world's been devastated and she she emerges from the world on a mission to take her basically her mom's remains to their original homeworld. So she has to figure out how to get off her planet, which has no technology now, and then move you know across the solar system to the planet where her mom's supposed to be buried. And she comes across two two junk collectors who happen to have crashed on the planet, and she convinces them to take take her to her homeworld. And then they you know they encounter all these kind of adventures along the way from that point to the end of the story 
Um, so it's going to be 18 illustrations, probably 30 page, um, 30 page short story. And once it's, I'm putting out WordPress right now. So if you go to mightypug.wordpress.com, um, you'll be able to read, I think I've put up five parts so far. I call them chapters. They're not really chapters. You know, they're more like one, one or two page bits, but, um, yeah, so I'm getting back to kind of illustration, telling a story, and eventually, you know, maybe this will be a, another film project. We'll see. Um, so that's the big one. I also produce for Heather Henson now, so I, I'm producing short films for her. So we have some short films in the works, and um, and I'm still out there pitching. I'm having conversations with a couple of the studios about possible projects, too. That's awesome. And just going back slightly to the Heather Henson, um, also available on Amazon Prime, a lot of the short films that Heather brought into my film festival when we did a screening, uh, it's called Handmade Puppet Dreams. The, these that what she kind of curates some of them she produces if she doesn't produce them she curates them and brings them together. A lot of that stuff is on Prime. Uh, earlier we met um, Sam mentioned I think Moon Fishing, which is really fantastic, which is one that's on there. It's kind of cool. Yeah. Like I haven't revisited these films in years, but thinking about them and I was when I you know when you look on Amazon Prime and you search Yamasan, some of the other ones come up and it's just kind of like sparking the memories of the the event screenings that we did and some of these films that I hadn't seen and several years that are just really fantastic short films. And there's a lot of that content that it's so crazy how the world has changed, Sam, from when I was doing the film festival and we were doing these events with you. And now with the digital, like streaming was a thing then, but it wasn't like it is now where it's just at your fingertips. It's just yeah. kind of an amazing, the progression and here we are, and particularly the age where everyone is essentially, you know, sheltering at home and quarantine and lockdown, whatever you want to call it. So you have yeah. some really, really fantastic puppet films to watch while you're at home beyond just Sam's and some that Sam produced. Can you quickly talk about some of the ones that you have produced? Like uh, you mentioned um, yeah. Toby Froud's film, some of the other things that you've produced with Heather. Yeah. So uh, Toby Froud is Brian and Wendy, uh, Brian and Wendy uh, Froud's son. The Frouds are the ones who designed, you know, the, the dark crystal and labyrinth worlds. Uh, Brian Froud's a famous, you know, famous, famous, sci-fi fan or fantasy illustrator and um toby's their son he was baby toby in labyrinth so he's always been part of the the creative kind of uh lifeblood uh, of these these kind of fantasy worlds and then um and then you know for the new henson uh, dark crystal series toby was one of their their main creative directors so he's gone from you know being the baby in labyrinth to now fully working as you know creative in his own right and uh, so I met him and worked with him on his first short film, which is called Lessons Learned. And if you go to Amazon Prime and look up Lessons Learned, you'll see it's it's a very what he calls a Freudian world with kind of goblin type characters on an adventure. The little boy getting lost in his his grandfather's kind of chest of dreams, um, which is a really, really fun project to work on. So that's when I worked, met Toby. And then when Yamasan came up, uh, I went to Toby and asked him if he wanted to be a producer. And he was great. Uh, I'll tell you a little story about that really quick. Just a little side story. Um, Toby wanted to see the script when we were developing it. So I sent him the script and he, you know, looked at it and he gave notes and he emailed notes to Dark Dunes, to the producers. And they really thought it was some person spamming them saying that it was, you know, that it was Toby and it wasn't really Toby. So my producer come, came to me one day and said, Sam, someone, someone's, someone's, you know, trying to get us to change the script and they're saying they're Toby. And I was like, 
I actually think it is Toby. Like, no, Toby wouldn't do that. I was like, yeah, actually, Toby was giving notes. And they were all good. They're great notes. He's a he's a great story guy, great visual guy. Um, he's top notch. He's he he worked at Leica for years, and now he's over working on Pinocchio, the new um, Guillermo del Toro stop motion film. So uh, he's a great guy. So Toby, yeah, Toby did Lessons Learned, and I was his producer for that. And then uh, also look for a narrative of Victor Carlock. It's kind of a mouthful, but uh, that's direct. That's directed by Kevin McTurk who's gone on to do some great kind of um, horror, horror adventure stories, you know, very kind of shot, dark and moody. Um, he did one called Mill at Calder's End and the new one, it's called the the Haunted Samurai, Blind Samurai. No, no, something Samurai, Haunted Samurai. No, anyway. you're making me forget, Sam. You have to, uh, something I'm Samurai. Sam, I think it, the, haunted, the Haunted Swordsman, the Haunted Swordsman. Haunted Swordsman, that's what it yes. is, yeah. So uh, that one just came out this year. I was playing the film festivals. Um, and then look for Legend of Rasputin, which is a newer one. That one I produced, and that's with Jamie Shannon, who's in Canada. Jamie's known for a show in Canada called Nana Land, which was kind of their Sesame Street. And it, on Nickelodeon, there's a show called Mr. Meaty, which is kind of a puppet Beavis and Butthead kind of show where they worked at a hot dog stand. Um, so Rasputin is more of a dark, you know, comedy. Everything's tongue in cheek and it's about Rasputin, you know, the famous Russian mystic who, you know, was tied in with the Romanov dynasty and all of that. So uh, check those out. And if I think if you look up Handmade Puppet Dreams on Amazon, all of them will come up. There's 16 films up there. Yeah, it's, it's a, great, a lot of great stuff. There's some really, really fantastic short films. So uh, do you have any final questions or thoughts for Sam guys? Yeah, I was wondering um, as far as the art of puppetry, where do you see it moving forward from here? Or like, where do you see it advancing in, uh, in the future? Uh, well, there's, you know, there's always like digital puppetry, which is, I think there are a lot of people trying out and testing things. Um, I think there'll be some overlap between puppetry and motion capture in that respect. Um, I'm even developing with a, with a artist in Norway a facial motion capture system for puppets. So it'd be kind of like, you know, performed faces, but the puppet bodies are still performed live by puppeteers. Um, experiments like that. I think there's going to be a lot of hybrid, hybrid stuff happening, you know, kind of like baby Yoda, uh, you know, Yoda is a lot yeah. of live performance, but I hear there's a lot of digital enhancement on baby Yoda in post. So I think that's the way it'll go. And, and then I think they're also going to be the stalwarts who are going to be like, puppets have to be 100% live. Don't ever, you know, don't ever mess with them. Who are going to want to shoot everything live and real and, and not get into the, into the manipulation and post. So, yeah. Nice. And then there's the, the big giant stuff like King Kong on Broadway or, you know, walking with dinosaurs doing giant puppets. That'll be cool. Yeah. Yeah. And I know, a da I know a dancer in King Kong, actually, she, uh, a friend, uh, uh, like a close friend's ex-girlfriend. She's, she's in that show. So <laughs> she was also in the Spider-Man one. So she's in like the oh, very wow. few handful of Broadway shows that I would actually probably want to see. So yeah. Yeah. Why did he break up with her? I could have gotten the ZD shows. What was up with that? Know, you can see the turn off. The dark. <laughs> There's no way that you can get me into turn off the dark. There's, There's no way. <laughs> I don't want to. I don't want to see a dead body. I'm good. <laughs> is Turn yeah. of the Dark 
That's hey, still, hey, King uh, Kong. We want to see King Kong. I really want to see that one. I really, I legitimately would want to see that. One. No, Turn Off the Dark was an uh, was an uh, an absolute disaster. Lost a lot of money. It, it it closed down within a year, if I remember correctly. Oh, okay. Yeah, so. I mean, it closed down pretty quick. I think it, it, it did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> she was not on that show for long. <laughs> Alrighty. Which is too bad. I mean, Julie Julie Tamer was the director, and she's she's done some amazing work over the years. You know, uh, she's controversial too, um, like Spider Man. But but yeah, she's she's one of those amazing. Uh, she started, I think, doing puppets first. You know, like Balinese puppets and and puppet theater and Shakespeare, and then branched out and started doing live action. You know, across the universe was no puppets except for I think the the little segment on the protest puppets. Is mostly live action actors, yeah. So she's one of those those few directors I think who've gone, you know, all the way across the gamut from theater puppets all the way to full feature films. You know, one thing I will say, I've I've found even watching Dark Crystal and prep for this, it's it's almost easier to take little bites of it, you know, instead of sitting and watching the whole thing at once. The, the best viewing experience I had of Yamasong with he- was showing Heather Henson, uh, giving her a private screening. And we probably watched it 20, 30 minutes at a time, took a break, ordered pizza, sat back down, watched some more. Then when food came, stopped, took a break, talked about it, then sat down, watched some more. You know, it's it's I almost want to break it into chapters. You know, I've I've talked to the producers about maybe re-releasing it in, down the line and doing it more like a five episode kind of thing yeah miniseries yeah. yeah very interesting you know what i do have one more question when yeah. i first saw it it kind of reminded me a little bit of like brothers quay was that an influence on you the brothers quay uh, not so much brothers quay i mean i'm, I'm coming more from the dark crystals kind of ang- angle um mm-hmm. dark crystal and then uh you know like hayao miyazaki you know like the the princess princess mononoke uh, spirited away kind of aesthetic, you know, that Japanese fantasy kind of anime kind of aesthetic. And then Jack Kirby, you know, comic books. Those are the, the those are the biggest influences. But um, I think probably when you see it and you see Brothers Quay, it might be because you're also seeing, again, real objects, real textures. And it's, you know, some of the creatures are darker and, and, and creepier than some of the others, you know. So there's probably that. Um, yeah, I really aesthetic. got that vibe when I was watching it is of Brothers Quay. No, that's cool. That's cool. I like their stuff, definitely. Yeah, no, they're great. <laughs> uh, Sam, thank you so much for for being here uh, once again. Yamasong, um, you know, available both the short and the full length feature on Amazon Prime. And uh, thank you so much for talking with us today. And yeah, hopefully we'll look out for some more uh, Yamasong verse, you know, in the near future. I'd love it. Yeah, thanks. And thank you, listeners, for listening in. You can check out all of our shows and offerings on thegrandgeekgathering.com. All of our podcasts are available on Spotify, on Google Podcasts, on Apple Podcasts, on Stitcher, on everything. And uh, if you can't find us, please let us know. And uh, don't forget to also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. I've been streaming on Twitch, and we also have our Let's Plays on YouTube as well. Once again, Yama Song, both the short and the full-length feature, are available on Amazon Prime for free. So go ahead and watch it. It's... It's a lot of fun and some awesome puppetry. Just be safe. Wash your hands. You know, care about your loved ones, but don't touch them. (laughs) (laughs) That's the approach I take with my daughters. Somebody should make like a hamster bubble or something and, you know, roll around. 
<laughs> yeah. Right. They, they, to my six month old, I say, change your own diaper, kid. I feel I like I can't we, touch you. <laughs> I feel like we need to watch Bubble Boy now. <laughs> Have a great week and GGG. What's on the silver screen? I got some takes you wouldn't believe. Bubble Grand.